Section One of Open the Door by Catherine Carswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Open the Door, Book One. Open the Door and Flee, Second Kings, Chapter Nine, Verse Three. Chapter One. One. For Julie Bannerman to leave home was in any case a heavy undertaking. Even without her four children, even with the admonishing help of her husband, the occasion was one for which complicated plans, gallant but not availing, had to be laid weeks beforehand. And on this morning neither alleviation was hers. As always, she had done her best, of course. The night before she had not undressed, had not so much as taken the hairpins from her aching head. Then, since breakfast, her two daughters, aged twelve and fifteen, had rushed about the house strapping and unstrapping luggage, and exhorting her. Her confused servants had done what they could. Even her little sons had tried to help, and as the four-wheeled cab went lumbering over the granite sets of the city, they strove unskillfully to knot up her bonnet-strings between them. But it was all no use. The morning express from Glasgow to Edinburgh, said the porter, had been gone these two minutes. Now there was no train until ten minutes past twelve. Smarting not for the first time under this kind of public ignominy, the children precipitated themselves upon the pavement before Queen Street Station, and Georgie, the eldest, a stout and lively girl, addressed herself with violence to the open door of the cab. It's always the same when father isn't here," she stormed. I told you we'd miss it, didn't I? In her rage she could have struck her mother. It exasperated the children that the culprit still stayed sitting in the cab, untying and retying the black ribbon strings of her bonnet with a little defiance in her face, and they knew she was avoiding their eyes when she leaned forward, smiling at the porter, seeking his sympathy speaking in her warm, pleasant voice. "'Oh, but I feel sure there must be a train before then,' she urged, as if by sheer hopefulness she could belie the timetables. "'Let me see the board.' And she began a cumbered descent from the cab. For a woman of but forty-two, even allowing for the fact that at this time she was some months gone with child, Julie moved heavily. Not even the loss of a night's rest could rob her face of its girlish freshness, but this very youthfulness and ardor of expression served to emphasize her physical ineptitude. It was as if she had never grown used to her body. Often enough had her children heard her sigh impatiently for wings. Yet Joanna, her younger daughter, looking on, could not believe that swiftness and grace were not mere matters of good will and that, therefore, this clumsiness was deliberate. "'Why will mother move like that?' she questioned in childish vexation. And driven by a strong craving, she stared away from the imperfection facing her, and set her eyes instead on a patch of the blue, perfect sky of May, which had shone out suddenly between showers above the housetops. "'The man must know about the trains, mother,' Georgie scolded and turning to the porter, she asked him when the twelve o'clock train reached Edinburgh. "'But Aunt Georgina's lunch is at one,' declared the elder boy, Linnet, 
when he had heard the reply, and spinning on his heel he seemed to find a zest in adding to the family misfortunes. Aunt Georgina will be cross. And what about the carriage? It'll be waiting at the station for us." At this a disconsolate exclamation came from Sholto, the youngest. Sholto did so love to sit by Mackintosh, his aunt's coachman, whose fur cape smelt of naphtha as they drove along Princess Street. Georgie glared murderously at her mother. "'It's all because father isn't here,' she repeated. But the timetable had showed a train that would leave the central station in half an hour. So the luggage was put back on the rail top of the cab, and the children crowded into it for the five minutes' drive. Their last difficulty lay in getting their mother to break off a conversation with the porter. She had discovered that as a lad he had attended her husband's Bible class for foundry boys, and now she was telling him about the evangelistic tour Mr. Bannerman was making in the United States of America. She had to be pushed and pulled, protesting into the cab. Then someone remembered that a telegram must be sent to Aunt Georgina. But at last they were set out on their way again and they were soon arranging themselves in the train. 2. Though the third-class compartment which the Bannerman family had secured to themselves would have seated ten full-grown people with comfort, it now appeared so to overflow with animated life that other travellers, valise in hand, passed it after one hesitating glance through its windows. Certainly the children from the moment of their entrance did everything they could think of to repel fellow-passengers. Not only was this by tradition essential to the joy of a journey, but if strangers got in, Mrs. Bannerman was sure to talk to them. She loved and idealized strangers, eagerly furnished them with reading matter and was swift in leading the talk to eternal verities, all of which was a severe trial to her daughters in their sensitive teens in most ways leading quite detached lives and feeling a good deal of contempt each for the other, Georgie and Joanna were at one in this. They hated any publication of their mother's peculiarities. And so young Sholto was posted at one of the platform windows and told to grimace with all his might at anyone who seemed to have designs on the door-handle, while behind him Linnet, disguised as an invalid, lay at full length propped slightly by a hold-all and covered to the chin with his mother's shepherd-plaid shawl. In another window an umbrella, crowned with Sholto's Glengarry and draped with Linnet's reefer coat, served as an additional scarecrow. In all this the leader was clearly Georgie. She gave her orders in double Dutch, a secret family language much used and treasured by the four, and the younger ones did her bidding more or less. To the mother's fitful supplication for quiet no one paid much attention. But really Julie was as youthfully elated as any of her children at the adventure of travelling, and they knew it. Her satisfaction, together with great pride in her unmanageable flock, beamed from her. She enjoyed, too, arranging the hand-luggage on the racks and beneath the seats, and was joyfully looking forward to opening the letters of that morning, one letter bearing the Philadelphia postmark. She had a day-old newspaper to read as well, and had brought with it several issues of The Believer and of Distant Lands, some of these still in their uncut wrappers of weeks ago and showing marks of dust. In the current number of The Believer she knew there was a breezily up-to-date article by her husband entitled, Are Miracles Essential?' 
to read with a clear conscience was a luxury Julie never enjoyed at home, where calls on her time and strength were unending, and household duties, in spite of her three servants, ever in arrears. Already on this journey she had expressed some of her pleasant anticipations to the kind guard who sympathized with their loss of the other train. Next, to her daughter's distress, she confided in the ticket-collector. "'We are going,' she told him, "'to the assembly of our dear free church.' "'I do wish, mother, you wouldn't tell everyone where we are going,' objected Georgie the moment the door was closed again. "'People only laugh at us. The man was laughing. I saw him. What's the use of telling him that Grandpapa came out at the disruption? He's probably a U.P. anyhow.' "'Dear, dear, how sensitive you children are,' replied Julie, undisturbed. She was annoyingly accustomed to such rebukes, and feeling suddenly hungry she opened a small paper bag and began to eat from it with relish. She had thriftily saved half a butter roll from their hasty breakfast. "'What if he did smile, Georgie?' she went on between bites. "'It will do him good to smile, and us no harm.' Georgie blew an irritated breath, and settling herself with a wriggle in the corner where the umbrella had been, she resolutely opened the book she had brought with her. It was Sartor Resartus. She did not understand it, but it exhilarated her with a sense of superiority to the rest of the family. She glanced scornfully across at her sister, who was reading titbits, indulging an inferior appetite for mere bits of curious information. The train had moved out of the station but just then it slowed down and stopped on the high bridge which there spans the Clyde. Joanna, from learning how many times a sovereign beat finely out would engirdle the earth, looked up and out of the window. Below her, framed in the great transverse shanks of the iron grill, the water looked so beautiful that she could have called out. Yet something kept her quite still and mute in her corner. It had been raining half an hour before and now the sun gleamed on the brown surface of the river and on the wet grey granite balustrades of the Jamaica Bridge. The bright red and yellow horse-cars flashed as they followed each other northwards and southwards along shining rails, and the passing craft on the water moved in a dun-coloured glory. By one bank some paddle-steamers were being repainted for the coming season. Joanna with the others had often sailed in them for summer cruises, and she knew by the number of funnels and their colors to which line each boat belonged. She knew the dredgers, too, obstinate in midstream, with their traveling lines of buckets trawling glittering filth from the riverbed, while passing them a string of half-submerged barges and rafts hung behind a little panting tug. Less familiar was a giant liner that made her slow way seaward. Her decks were deserted. Only a negro leaned gazing upon a rail astern. This picture, cut into sections and made brilliant by the interposing trellis of black metal, appealed not so much to the little girl's untrained eye, as symbolically through her eye to her heart which leapt in response. The sunshine on that outgoing vessel and the great glistening current of brown water filled her with painful yet exquisite longings. She did not know what ailed her, nor what she desired. She got no further than thinking that she would like to be a stewardess when she grew up. With a warning cry and a long shudder, the train, which had only stopped for a moment, started again. But before it had passed over the bridge, 
Georgie, too, glancing up from her reading at the disturbance, caught sight of the river. "'Oh, look! Just look! Look at the river, all of you!' she shouted, rushing across the carriage. "'Mother, Joanna, isn't it simply lovely? Isn't it exquisite?' And in her enthusiasm she dragged her mother to the window at which her sister was seated. "'Only look there!' Julie leaned to look back at the retreating vision. She had laid her hand on Joanna's shoulder, partly to steady herself, partly in affection. "'Yes, dears, beautiful,' she agreed with warmth. "'God has put us into a beautiful world. Let us try and make our own lives to match it.' And after a pause she quoted words which had risen in her mind at the sight. "'They go down to the sea in ships and see his wonders in the mighty deep.' Joanna felt miserably inclined to shake off her mother's touch, which had increased to a meaning pressure on her shoulder. It seemed to violate her, and she guessed with hatred at the pleased, ready tears in her mother's eyes. Even while her own tears pricked painfully behind her eyeballs at the beauty of her mother's words, she threw up frantic defenses against their bid for her sympathy. Not for the world would she have yielded, not for the world could she have told why. The familiar, absurd thought came to her that she was perhaps a changeling or foster-child in the Bannerman family, no real relation to any of them. How else explain this trouble, this obstinate aloofness that was so common with her? As for Julie, she sat in her place and reviewed her little family, her hens of gold as she loved to call them. God, in His infinite mercy, she mused, had seemed fit to give her the charge of these four immortal souls, and she would, with his help, try not to fail in so great a trust. In the scurry that morning she had not found time to kneel as long as usual by her bedside. Without constant and secret prayer she knew herself unable to face the difficulties of daily life. So now she closed her eyes and prayed. She prayed for each of her children including the one yet unborn, for strength and wisdom to guide their feet in the way of peace, for her husband in Philadelphia and the work he was doing among souls there between the intervals of his business. Lastly, she prayed for the whole family of mankind. But prayers embracing the human race are so generous that upon the soul that offers them they have the soothing and releasing effect of a wide landscape or a river which has quietly overflowed its banks. And this is what happened to Julie Bannerman. A sense of extraordinary peace lapped her about. The white believers and the blue distant lands she had thought to enjoy were destined to travel back to Glasgow a week later in their unviolated wrappers. She slept. 3. The train ran on with a throbbing rhythm that was grateful to the sleeping woman. Linnet sat in a lethargy as usual, twitching his pale blue delicate eyes in a way he had, and Sholto, who wanted to fire off a new penny pistol, searched his sporin for pink percussion caps. With his Glengarry off the child showed a bullet-like head covered with short, dark fur, a head that looked as if it could ram enemies out of its way. And the strong knees beneath his tweed kilt were always covered with bruises, which were his pride when the first pain of them was past. Already he was more than a match for Linnet, 
and his sisters had been compelled to abandon physical reliance in their dealings with him. When he was whipped he bellowed, but shed few tears, unlike Linnet, who overflowed at a touch. Indeed, it was enough to address Linnet teasingly as President Lincoln, his namesake, to see the corners of his mouth go down. Though he was now ten, his mother had not yet had the heart to cut the fair effeminate ringlets which reached the collar of his sailor suit. The others, all straight-haired, were proud of Linnet's curls. Georgie and Joanna seemed deep in their reading. Joanna, seeing her mother asleep, had kicked off her shoes without untying the laces. Her brown beaver hat lay beside her. Both girls were dressed alike in porridge-colored coats trimmed after the fashion of the nineties, with panels of terracotta plush. Ugly garments they were, but they had a special quality in their wearer's eyes, because Aunt Purdy from Italy had chosen them. About a month before, Aunt Purdy, Julie's sister, till then known to the children by name only, as poor Aunt Purdy, who led a vaguely romantic, vaguely unmentionable existence on an Italian hilltop, had seized the chance of her disapproving brother-in-law's absence to pay them all a visit in Glasgow. During her short stay she had turned the Bannerman household upside down. It was a household where personal remarks were not made, but Aunt Purdy's talk had consisted chiefly in personalities. She had turned from her soup at dinner to tell the housemaid that her hair was glorious but her face stupid, had assured Georgie that her neck and hands were her only good points in looks, had drawn up impromptu horoscopes unasked for each member of the family, from Julie to the cook. It was on the occasion of the choosing of the porridge-colored coats that she had announced with all the gravity and force of prophecy that Joanna promised to be a beauty in the course of time. It was a prophecy rebuked by Julie, but both Joanna and Georgie had heard it, and since that day the relations between the two girls had changed subtly. Till then the elder had been a secret bully. When they were dressing together she would often throw Joanna's clothes onto the dusty top of the wardrobe, and she had enjoyed watching her suffer. But even then she had sometimes felt a curious spasm in herself seeing her youngest sister asleep in the bed they shared. Joanna's skin made her think of wild roses, and there was a suggestion of fragility in these undecided contours that roused something besides her contempt. Not so very long before, at a Christmas party at Aunt Georgina's, when her mother had arrived very late, bringing her whole flock, though only two had been expected, Cousin Irene, newly returned from finishing in France, had swept the apologetic little Glasgow group with her tortoiseshell lorgnette. Irene was terribly fashionable. "'What sturdy children!' she had drawled. Julie, proud of the robust body she had brought forth and reared, had smiled, delighted at the compliment. But Georgie had been lashed by her cousin's patronage. She had stood out crimsoning and looking in that moment sturdier than ever. "'That shows all you know!' she had exclaimed. "'Linnet's extremely delicate. He has to wear a truss. And Joanna is not a bit sturdy. She has to have malt extract with every meal, and it was all Mother could do to rear her at all." What Georgie had not realized before her Aunt Purdy's visit was that Joanna's look of fragility held a promise of future beauty. Now without question she knew and accepted it. She felt not a trace of envy. 
The contempt did not go, but the bullying ceased. Julie still slept. She had in full measure the capacity for making up arrears of sleep. And it was well that she had, for failing to get to bed in the ordinary way and at a reasonable hour of the night was one of the sins that did most easily beset her. She acknowledged it, fought and prayed against it, but with little avail. And her children were as ashamed of it as if she had been a drunkard. To herself Julie's weakness was a baffling mystery. Night after night, soon after ten o'clock had struck, however strong her resolve of the earlier evening had been, she was beset by a vision of duties undone. There were letters that should have been answered weeks ago, the accounts needed making up, checks ought to be signed. Throughout the day interruptions, to which she was ever a victim, had prevented her from attending to these things. And now, between ten and eleven, they collected to form a dark cloud about her. Scratch, scratch would go her unready pen. And she took great pains with her erasures, always having a fine penknife by her in her japanned pencil case, and finally rubbing the place quite smooth with the back of her fingernail. When her husband was at home he had the authority to drive her to bed, but now that he was away the girls would wake with an unhappy start hearing the clock strike two, and would steal in to remonstrate. Never in after-life could they hear the sound of a quill-pen squeaking along paper, without a vision of their mother by candlelight, her face wearing a look of innocent craft mingled with guilt at being found out. True, even then she usually maintained the defensive. So long as she was at her chaotic desk she was upheld by the sense that she was fulfilling duties, however belatedly. But there were times when, in the delicious quiet of midnight, she would be ensnared by the unread newspaper of that morning. And this, whether discovered in it or not, she held to be sinful. At other times, again, on some slight pretext, such as a fresh box of matches, she would, with many precautions, creep down the basement stairs and prowl about the kitchen, peeping into jars, sniffling inquisitively at their contents, testing Ellen's saucepans with a forefinger to see if they were thoroughly scoured, finding a dozen things amiss. Ultimately, the housewife in her rampant, she would spend three-quarters of an hour cutting up bars of soap into even squares for the economy of drying before use. And when she came to place them neatly in rows on a high shelf, she would find that the shelf wanted dusting. On these occasions she reverted entirely to the careful, secretive, peasant stock from which her family had sprung on her father's side, a strong stock that had risen and married far above itself. In spite of a prickling conscience, Julie enjoyed her stolen visits to the kitchen like a truant schoolgirl, and during such raids her mouth would be set in lines of obstinate naughtiness. When her husband was at home, however, there were but few adventures below stairs for her. Her unpunctuality, her muddle-headedness and her slowness were very trying to a facile and naturally precise man as he was, and she was achingly aware of her own shortcomings. Not that Sholto treated her harshly. He was forbearance itself, and she knew he recognized her constant struggle to please him. Greatly she craved his affection, and he gave it to her. But not like a spendthrift. He doled it out, while she devoured it hungrily. She was conscious without vanity that he had a fixed perception of her goodness, 
her inherent purity of heart and motive, and that he consciously kept this in mind when she tried his patience. And for this she was humbly grateful, often telling herself how blessed she was in such a husband. But without knowing it she thirsted for something Sholto did not give her, as he had it not, and when this thirst attacked her she suffered a sick loneliness of heart that drove her to her knees. There, by her bedside, many a time, with tears, she would ask forgiveness of God for having married. For when she was twenty-five there had come very definitely to Julie Erskine, as she then was, the call to a religious vocation. Had she been a Roman Catholic, she would undoubtedly have entered some working order such as that church provides, and under its strict rule and constant spiritual exercises might have thriven. But to her the Church of Rome was the scarlet woman. So her call demanded simply that special kind of consecration, which, so long as there are leper islands abroad and slums at home, will always remain open to ardent souls of any denomination. Julie had taken her decision, but not yet a definite post for service, when she met Shalto Bannerman, and very soon after their meeting he asked her to become his wife. Shalto, with his immediate charm, had become accustomed to women's admiration, and up to a point he was susceptible. But no woman had ever appealed to him so strongly as this one. Miss Erskine was not pretty, but her physical freshness, notable in itself, was made arresting by some spiritual quality in her which Sholto did not attempt to define. And she was just difficult enough to make the winning of her a pleasure. She would have refused anyone else, but Sholto's chance lay in the fact that they had met in mission work, and in a particular vineyard where he was already an experienced laborer. In 1881 there had swept over Scotland a wave of religious revival, the second and lesser wave set a-going by Moody and Sankey, and in Glasgow alone the registered converts numbered over thirty-two thousand. There were stupendous after-meetings which made the city hall resemble a vast fishing-ground, with the blind, sweet-voiced singer and the nasal, humorous Yankee orator as the skillful casters of nets. Both Sholto and Julie had readily lent themselves as helpers, and it was thus that they had met. Julie had hesitated long and seriously, but in the end she had taken Sholto instead of her dream of holiness. He was so handsome, so masterful, yet so gracious, so full of sunshine and apparently so warm. He was so sure, too, that as his wife she would be fulfilling her true destiny. Every argument was on his side. The idea of a home of her own had always worked strongly in Julie. She loved children and seemed made to care for them. So she recanted. But she never forgot her dream and when her babes came she told herself that surely the beings born of such a marriage would give themselves in due time to the work from which their mother had turned back. Nay, they would do it far better than she, with her many drawbacks of temperament, could ever have done. So one by one she dedicated them and prayed for them, and was content to be obliterated from the book of life itself, if only her prayers might be answered. With her husband she had a measure of happiness. To the end she idealized him, to the end hid her hunger under self-censure. 
in the intimate chamber of their married life, she was never really awakened. Sholto, in the early days, used to tell her laughing that she compared favorably with other women in her wifely demands, which he declared were an almost fraternal affection. She believed this, and was flattered by it, as he had intended she should be, impressed too by his air of worldly knowledge. But it was not the truth. She wanted utter union with him, and as she could unite with no one, she remained wrapped within herself. When she felt the stirrings of passion in herself, she was dimly ashamed, and had to reason that, after all, this world was peopled by God's own ordinances. Only the yielding up of oneself to mere delight was sinful. As for Sholto, he too was faintly ashamed of his sensual self, but it was not so strong that he could not keep it fairly easily in hand. The baffling truth about him, known to no one, least of all to himself, was that at the very heart of him there was an emptiness. He was a fine, gracious figure of a man, but at the center of his being there was a falling away. This, though he gave other reasons and believed them, was why he shunned intimacies. Sometimes, when life pressed hard on him, a look of vague fear would cross his face. But it always passed quickly, and the guarded, sunlit emptiness returned. He subscribed to the evangelical system, not passionately like his wife, but because it saved him from thought. He had the faith of a little child. He had also the spasmodic terror of a little child that its faith may be misplaced. Indeed, he was in twenty ways a child. He liked all games and played them well without taking special pains. He liked laughter, too, and could never resist a pun. Being with his children gave him pleasure, and he took them out for long walks on Saturday afternoon, when they had much ado to keep up with his strong springing steps. To them it seemed that the earth shook a little under his tread, and they looked up to him as to a god. To women it was his habit to speak banteringly, and they liked it, smiling on after he was gone. But what Sholto loved best of all was public speaking. Better than games, better than being with his children, better than shooting Capricalzi and rabbits at Dontarvi, their house in Perthshire, better than his curbed enjoyment of his wife's virginal freshness, was to him the elevation of a platform. This for him was the unique sensation of existence. He had the gift of winning and holding attention, and he was supremely conscious of the upturned faces of his audience drinking in each word as he made point after point with a shallow, limped charm. So long as he was speaking to an assembly, that secret emptiness of his did not matter. End of section one.